morning. Happy Easter. My goodness, I love, I love this time. Um, Martin Luther wrote a quote about spring that reminds us. He says, uh, our Lord has written this, the promise of the resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. Um, we see it kind of maybe displayed in azaleas, dogwoods. Um, all of a sudden, everything just kind of erupts in life. It looked kind of dead, and then all of it was cold. And all of a sudden, you get a, a couple of warm days, and everything just explodes in color and life. And I love it. And it lasts for two weeks, right? <laughs> two weeks. And then we're reminded, oh, yeah, we live here, right? And there's beauty, and then there's just brokenness. And it's every, it hits me every spring. I'm always reminded, and I, I'm always surprised. I don't know why I continue to be surprised. I'm like, oh, this is a wonderful place. It's, there's warmth and joy, and, and there's color, and it's gonna, not going to last, right? I remember that. It's because we need to be reminded we need a living hope, a real hope. Um, I've been at the, the ball fields a lot lately. I'm coaching seven, eight-year-old girls uh, soccer. Uh, we've got four children. They're in baseball. Um, they are in soccer. I just heard the birds. Have y'all heard the birds? That means it's Easter here. Every time I, I remember, they, they just moved in, and they're here for two weeks, and then they're gone. It re- it's another just kind of a picture uh, of Easter. I, I tried to get on the roof this week, and they're very hard to get to. <laughs> and I needed a ladder after the ladder on the roof to get to the next roof, and I thought, it's raining. I don't want to be dead, so I, I didn't do anything else. Um, but we've been to the ball fields. And I don't know if you ever see the, uh, maybe the dad that's a little bit too into their kids playing or, or, or a little too hard on the refs for, for what just happened, right? Um, and he, maybe you may thinking, be thinking to yourself, is this guy living vicariously maybe, li- living through his son and, and he's pouring all his time and effort and emotion, this relentless practice um, into him to maybe be what he wasn't when he was little or maybe what he was and he can feel like this can improve on what's going on with his son, and I've never had to really do that myself. I look at my DNA and think, what's the point, right? That, you know, don't, there's no pressure, kids. You're not going to be going to college on any scholarships, uh, certainly not playing sports, but um, it's a real thing. A dad sees maybe in his son a hope that he didn't see in himself, maybe trying to recapture something, and what happens when that doesn't work out? What if the kid gets hurt? What if he doesn't even like sports? Where do you end up? And so what we need is a living hope, a a hope that the Bible offers us through Jesus, a hope for life now and beyond. And so our three points today are very simple. Why we need a living hope. I hope to tell you that because Peter does. First Peter, what the living hope changes. Is it real? Is it just in our minds? And number three, how do we get this living hope? And I don't mean how do you understand it or hear about it or just read it. I mean, how do you get it in such a way that you are different, that it affects you and it changes you? That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about just living a life according to some propositions and some rules. This is Christianity. It's much deeper. Let's read together. First, first Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though for now, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's Peter. He's writing to a people that are under great persecution and suffering, and he's talking about joy. I think we need that. We need to know what's the recipe for that. So why do we need a living hope? Because we live in a broken world. It's messed up. Sin and death entered the world back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, assuming that he was not really good. He was holding back blessings. Don't eat from this tree. What do you mean, don't eat from the tree? That must be the good stuff. What are you holding back? We've got to eat from the tree. And so they disobey God and bring in sin, and death is ushered into the world. And ever since then, we live in a broken world full of broken relationships and divorce and parents that are at odds with their children and children that are at odds with their parents. We have orphans, we have racism and sexism and ageism and natural disasters and cancer and sickness. And even this morning, if you read the paper, there are church bombings. With over 400 people are injured and over 150 people are dead in Sri Lanka. And so we can put on our Easter best, which is great, and we can play the part, which is great, but inside we know better. We need some serious help. And we need some deep healing. And we need it now. And so that's what we're talking about today. That Christianity is real. It's not your mom and daddy's religion. It's not just a set of propositions, and it's not a, a, an ancient, just an ancient book that, that gives us good morality. And Christianity, it deals with real life and brokenness and suffering and trials in life. And it doesn't pretend that once you, were, once you become a follower of Jesus, life gets easier. It doesn't tell us to smile and fake it till you make it in the face of difficulty. It doesn't give you a, a fairy tale hope. It doesn't gloss over true struggles. It doesn't say, oh, it's not that bad. It says sometimes you know it is. In fact, Christianity is very real. It's very real about having an active enemy and that life will deliver hardship. And that sometimes those hardships will draw you closer to God or, or you'll want to run farther away from him. And suffering in various trials, as Peter puts it, that we read about, read about in, in verse 6, he was addressing this, Peter, this people that, was un, that were under great trials. And some even to the point of death. That strong, living hope. Now your various trials, to use that phrase, are from three areas. I just put them on screen. I mean, these are the main areas that our trials come from. Somebody else's sin, your own sin and poor decisions, or simply the sin of this broken world that we live in. Something will threaten you in at least one of these areas if you live long enough, no matter what your belief system is. It'll be your health. It'll be your family. It'll be your professional achievement or career. 
It'll be your wealth or, or your security or your 401k or, or, or something that, that you find security or comfort in. Or your position in society, your reputation. One of those five things will be challenged. And, and we don't realize how fragile our hope is until it's challenged. And often we aren't sure where we've placed it until it fails us. And if your hope is in succeeding in any of those areas, in, in health or your family or professional achievement, your wealth or, or in position in society, and those aren't bad on their own, but if they become ultimate, when they fail, it will crush you. If you grew up poor or feeling unimportant or insignificant, it may be important for you to prove yourself. By getting a great, a prestigious job, you're able to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're able to put yourself through school and you're working and then maybe med school and, and residency and you become a surgeon. That's great. And when, you def- when, when that is how you define success in life, when that is your ultimate hope that you made it, right? And if you're in a car accident and you can't use your hands and therefore you can't do surgery anymore, what happens? Who are you? Or if you become a professional athlete and have a season career, a season or a career-ending injury, where's your hope? Or if you're on the quest for beauty and you go through all the surgeries and the weight loss and you, and you do all that or, or losing weight, and what, what happens when life doesn't produce something a little bit more close to home? What if you think, I must not get divorced like my parents? If I could just have the family that, that, that I've always wanted, that they wanted, and, and if I could just keep my, the emphasis and success in life would be having a good marriage, and, and, that, and then you put the pressure of whether or not you are okay on your marriage. That makes your family ultimate. And guess what? Your family can't support that kind of weight. You need a stronger hope than that. All the stuff that we're shooting for in the world is our hope can and eventually will be taken from us. Christianity has a different hope than the rest of the world. That's why we're we're here, right? It it has a hope that's not built on circumstances. It has a hope that is not built on the results of our lives. It's, It's bigger than we are. It is a hope for this present world now and a hope for the one that extends beyond it. Verse 4 says we have an inheritance that is it's imperishable and undefiled and unfailing, uh, unfading. That's a bunch of big words. It means it ain't going nowhere, and it's awesome. That's what that means. It's a hope that we don't have to produce, and it's more real than what we can see, taste, touch, and feel. Uh, we don't have to blind, blind, blindly, blindly follow it, and it has power to reach down into our lives and change us. It's not just something we are conforming to. It is conforming us. There, there's a hope, real, real hope that, that, that you can get a hold, hold of. That's what we're talking about. That's the hope we're talking about. Now, now this real, this living hope, it, it changes. What does it change? So let's just say it. For the Christian, living hope isn't clinging to a potential future. If I could just have this, if I could just be this, if I could just have a relationship, if I'm single, if I could just be married, if I'm married, if I could just have kids, if I have kids, if I could just have the right kids, right? You just keep finding one more thing, right? It's not that. It's not, it's clinging to a person. 
That's where the hope of Christianity is. And that's what we're here to celebrate. Jesus, the one, the one who, because he was resurrected from the dead, we have a hope of a resurrection, and he has power to change us. Right? And it's not a hope in circumstances changing. It's not a hope um, that, that we will find favorable results. It's better. Those are beside the point. And when you're a Christian, and you really have experienced Jesus, and you understand who he is and what he's done, that he is delighted in you, that he doesn't just tolerate you. That's what I, I always, when I was growing up, I, I, would, I knew what I needed to do, and I knew the rules, and I knew I needed to read my Bible every day, and I knew I needed to pray, and I needed to do all this stuff, and I knew that Jesus paid the penalty for me. He, he was my substitute on the cross. And because Jesus did what he did, God wasn't mad at me anymore, but I just thought he tolerated me. And he let me sit at the table because legally he had to. Jesus appeased the wrath of God. Well, thank God for that. I'll just sit at the table and hope I don't screw it up enough. That's what I thought. That's not what the gospel says. (laughs) The the gospel says not only were the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled, Not only was Jesus' life perfect, and your life wasn't, and he gave it for you, and there was this great exchange at the cross, and then he said, you know, my life for yours. But when we come to the table, we are welcomed as sons and daughters. We are delighted in that God loves us. And that that is enough to get us to hoop and to holler on, not just on an Easter Sunday, but on a Monday morning. And so we talk about that a lot. In fact, today, a lot of y'all are sitting here going, hey, we do this every week. Yeah. We celebrate the resurrection every week. Why? Because it changes who we are. And because of the resurrection, you're not a prisoner. You're not in bondage to who you were or your sin or your mistakes or your, or, or your choices in the past. And this is a real, not a theoretical thing. This is not just so you feel better about yourself. We're not into to positive thinking. We don't think that's the gospel. That's you. The gospel's outside of you. God has freed you if you believe in Jesus. You've repented. If you, you're not defined by your sins, your fears, your failures, <laughs> I like that. Colossians 2 verse 13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him and having, and having forgiven us all our trespasses, all of them, past, present, future, we were dead, we were given life, you're not sick, you're dead. The big difference, you don't make, if you're sick, you take some medicine, but if you're dead, you're like, you're done. And he made you alive. That's what baptism is a picture of, death to life. And it's this huge need, and that's why there's a living hope that Peter is delivering. He says that the living hope makes dead things live. This is the gospel. This is, this is the good news that you're not judged by your past. It's no longer got power over you. In fact, you're no longer under the penalty of your sin at all. You're never going to pay for the punishment of what you deserve. And you're, con- you're right presently being delivered from the power of sin in your life. You're being conformed to the image of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's an amazing thing. Here, here's, a, here's a quote from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer, this, this one always gets me because I have so much uh, in my past of just not feeling like, I, I just felt like God was going to finally find out something 
and I know he knows all things, but I always felt like, you know, if you knew that, if, if I knew that you knew that, then I don't think this would be, I don't think you'd really love me. And here, here's a, 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 a quote that I, I can't get away from. There's tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. So that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Can, can you say that with confidence? Some days I can. That's an amazing thing that God's not going to find out something about us that he didn't already know. And yet, his love is so deep and wide that he still chose to do what he did. That Jesus isn't going to finally discover something about you that proves and confirms why he should not love you. And that should leave us stunned and poised for worship. That's the kind of hope that, that changes how we live in the everyday. How, how we respond to challenges. How it changes, it changes even our perspective on victory and success and what that looks like and what we think it is. When Jesus is your living hope, you have a different perspective on life and trials and suffering. To the world, the fact that Jesus, a great teacher, a great prophet, a miracle worker, a leader, he went to the cross that made him look weak and defeated and unprepared for a real battle, didn't it? I mean, if you're there, that, that's what that looked like. Here's our leader. And by the way, he's now dead, which means everything he stood for is gone. Humiliation and embarrassment and shame and failure all fell on God's only son. How misunderstood could a king be? And yet he was not confused. He was misunderstood. And he wielded that perceived weakness like an atomic bomb on the kingdom of darkness. And through his torturous death, he conquered sin, death, Satan, and all the powers of darkness. He absorbed also all of God's wrath that you and I deserve for our past and our present and our future sins. And he said, I'll take it. I'll take it all, over all time. Give it to me. Give me all you've got. All the shame, all the fear, all the guilt, all the failure, everything. And when he was raised, he was resurrected. It was because the justice of God was finally satisfied. And now we're brought back into this relationship with God because of Jesus, as he always intended. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, you stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. See, Jesus wasn't trying to overthrow the, Roman gov the government in the first century. Everybody thought he would. He was. He was trying to bring the kingdom of Israel back. No. It's bigger than that. The scope is much larger. 
He was breaking the powers of darkness, stripping sin of its stronghold, and taking back life by breaking the back of death for all nations over all the earth. And this victory wasn't what it appeared on the surface. It was a lone man dying on a cross, executed as a common criminal. And so I say that for hope. So too, the hope for your victory and success may not be what you think in this life. As you mature in Jesus, you understand that you're united with Christ, that you have been brought in, that you are a child of God, of the King. And then your, glory, your goals and your victories and your perspective change. Your goal isn't always to escape trials. That doesn't mean you don't pray for deliverance. It's to see Jesus. It's to be more like him. It's to be like, like he prayed in the garden. And, and, and you just see the humanity of Jesus. It's this cup could pass. If there's any other way. And yet he follows with, but not my will, but yours. But sometimes we don't always know what to pray. Only if you really get Christianity can this seem to work. No longer are your circumstances what dictate what victory is. Because Christianity challenges the narrative. It, it redefines goals. It redefines victories. It allows you, the Apostle Paul, to say things like, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You live like that? We can. Whether I live or whether I die, I want to follow Jesus. I want to love Jesus. I've been in his presence to such a degree that I want more of that, and it's worth everything even laying down my life. As somebody who's been in God's presence, regardless of the outcome, and, and the circumstances don't change, they don't control whether or not I'm victorious. So I want to tell you a, a quick tale of two glories. Two friends of mine. One's uh, name is Scott Fitz. He goes to church here. And a few years ago, he came back from a mission trip in Africa. And he started feeling some numbness and tingling in his back and his legs. And it kind of spread. And then that numbness and tingling was followed by weakness. And it was just getting more difficult to walk. And it was just tended to progress to the degree he had to go to a hospital. And you know it's bad if a man decides himself to go to a hospital. I know from personal experience, I had a man that would drive me there, and he would, it's a long story, but <laughs> I was not going to go. I didn't want to pay, I wanted to buy a grill, I didn't want a $200 copay at the hospital. I'll just wait till the morning, I'll be fine, thank you very much. It'll pass. And he went under all kinds of tests, from EKGs to spinal taps. And people love a diagnosis, because they know what it is, and th therefore how to respond, how to treat it what's going to happen, and then however many tests there were, they were all inconclusive. They just weren't sure. Their best guess was Guillain-Barre, GB, GBS. I'm a physical therapist, so to me, I know exactly what that means. To you, you may not know what that is. It's, and even though this isn't it, this is the closest thing to it. It's a disease that's not terribly well understood. 
People that run marathons afterwards kind of get flu-like symptoms sometimes, and they contract it. Sometimes it's from a, a flu. You don't know where it comes from. Healthy people get it, and unhealthy people get it. And it starts with numbness and tingling in what we call a, a stocking and glove pattern from your extremities, from your feet and from your hands. And it works toward your torso, toward your, your body. And it gets worse. It's a neurological disorder. It's not orthopedic. It's not, you can't do workout to get stronger necessarily. And in some cases, as it works its way in, it takes the muscles that you use to breathe, your respiratory and you're swallowing muscles, and it paralyzes them to where you're stuck in a bed on a respirator. It's great knowing that. Oh, Google will mess you up when you're looking up these kind of symptoms. And so Scott had chronic pain in his legs, and he was, unable, he was running. He was unable to run. He couldn't really work. He owned his own business. And now he's thinking, this is all up for grabs. What am I going to do? What if I can't work? How do I take care of my family? And so he started planning for the worst, and it took place over a course of months, and many conversations took place. What is God doing? Why is this happening? I went on a mission trip. And he finally came to the place of the Apostle Paul, to where it's no longer theoretical, and where your, your life is in front of you. And you say things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Or maybe paraphrase, to live as Christ or to live in a paralyzed state or die is gain. More Christ. Either way, Jesus, my life is yours. I surrender. I trust you. Victory doesn't always look like I think it should. Not my will, but yours be done. Came to that conclusion. I love my friend. We were ready for whatever. His wife was ready for whatever. And Scott was able, able to slowly get his ability back to walk and through a bunch of treatments and a bunch of time and, and, and working hard. And he still has some residual pain in his legs, but he's able to work now. Praise God, he was able to be delivered. I have another friend named Baker. We met when I was probably early 20s, 23, 25. I was 25. He was 23. And... um. He was a little dude. He was probably 5'3". Um, huge heart. Love for Harley Davidsons. The bigger and the louder. And he loved it more. He had a sweet spirit. He loved Jesus deeply. We worked landscaping together before I could find a PT job. <laughs> so we were laying sod. I had, I had two bachelor's degrees and I was knocking out some sod, baby. I'd just blow my nose and it was like, there's the yard I just laid. That was, that was for free. <laughs> That's not written down. <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> and Baker and I, we would lay aside and just talk about Jesus. And finally, he felt called to global missions. And so he went to an overseas mission school. While he was at the school, planning for, to be a, a lifelong missionary, he, he got sick. Um, he got diagnosis. He got a diagnosis of terminal leukemia. Uh, he wasn't able to finish even his training. He had to return home for treatment. It was an advanced case. Um, he, he underwent treatment for several months during the time when he got weaker and balder. Um, and we would go visit him. Of course, you couldn't always visit him because we have germs, and he had to be in isolation. He had to wear a gown and stuff. And 
But when people would go visit him, what was remarkable about Baker was he would just talk about how good God was. This is a, this is a living hope in a dying man. This, this is real stuff. Why are you talking about that? That's so depressing. Yeah, I know. Depends on your perspective. Is Christianity all it's chalked up to be? Is Jesus who he says he is? Or is it a fairy tale? Is it your mom and daddy's religion? Or is it really real? Do you, are you around people that actually walk through and live this stuff? Because you should be. We've got to be exposed to this. Because we call Christianity a lot of times what it's not. He made sure that everybody knew in his dying that Jesus was his living hope and he suffered. And his suffering was tempered with this amazing uh, joy. And he was my mentor in how to die and how to live. <laughs> I'll never forget it. See, different results and circumstances didn't determine either one of these victories or successes. Trusting in Jesus with their lives, regardless of outcome, did. Because Christians can deal with real life and death. Eventually, we all have to. Sometimes it's just accelerated for some of us. My question is, does what you believe in have that kind of power? Living hope, it changes how we live. It changes how we suffer. If you'll notice, Peter connects joy and rejoicing to grieving and trials. <laughs> what? Usually you have one or the other. But he says, through, though now you do not see him. See, they didn't, they didn't see Jesus either, the people he was writing to, just like us. You believe in him and rejoice. Even though you're going through great suffering, you, re, you can rejoice. doesn't mean you're always going to do that, but, but you can rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. That's in present tense. And he's not saying, hey, be fake. Just put on a mask and suffer like a good Christian. Here's my smile. This is terrible. He's not saying that. That's not Christianity. That's religion. It's telling you what you should do, and then you try to do it hoping for an internal change from an external deal. That's not what you're called to. The joy we're talking about is connected to the living hope through the resurrection. How did Jesus handle suffering on the cross? How did, what did he say in the garden? Did he say, I'm just rejoicing in the fact that I'm on my way to the cross. I know that my Father's working his will out. No, he didn't say that. He cried out in agony. He said, if this cup can pass. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. He cried out on the cross. And yet, we read in Hebrews 12, let's put it up there, verse 2. And looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, it's not divorced from joy. It was through the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy is a motivator in life, in the worst part of life. What was the joy? The joy of him reconciling his people once and for all that, that had been separated from God since the garden. The joy of vindicating God's name. The joy of knowing that he took everything that you deserve so that you get from God everything that he deserved when you believe. The joy that is set before us, that changes us, is Jesus himself. Do you know Jesus in such a way as to be able to say that and believe that? 
that there is this joy inexpressible that wells up in you. That he's your treasure, that he's your ultimate hope. Finally, how do I get this kind of living hope? True Christianity is life-giving. It's a source of power to face life's most difficult challenges and its highest joys. It's attainable only through a relationship with Jesus that he is the only way to this living hope. It's not yours because you walked an aisle, you filled out a card, or even if you repeated a prayer after a professional. And you can do those things, that's great. You may even get baptized. Those things do not save you, and they don't get you living hope. And some people call themselves Christian uh, because they seem to adhere to a certain set of propositions. Like I was telling you, I'd read my Bible every day, and I would go memorize memorize Scripture, and I would do good things, and I would tithe, and then I would give above that sometimes because it was feeling really holy, right? These are, if this is the extent of our Christianity, I would say this is almost Christian because it presents as though it is. But there, there's, little, there's no heart change, there's no desire, there's no pain when we really do sin, there's no desire to be different and recognize the battle of, why do I keep doing that? I don't want to do that, but I am doing that. And then, oh, Lord, help me. And then when I do actually do well, oh, thank you that you're, you're empowering me to follow you. It's your grace. And, and we have this life, and our heart really wants to know Jesus. Otherwise, we're just walking through motions, hoping that something's going to be different on the inside. I had a, uh, my very first car was a, a 1965 old Ford Mustang. Um, it, it had black leather. I was in, from Mississippi, so black leather seats, no air conditioning, AM, FM, uh, no, no FM, AM radio. Um, it got hot, and it was, you, you think, oh, that's awesome, 289, three on the floor. It, it didn't run real good. I learned a lot. I learned how to replace radiators and clutches. That's about all I know how to do. But you could get to it on that engine. You just open the, you're nodding here, Rich. You just open the, the hood, and it's like, there it is. That's the entire engine. I just climb in here with it, you know, <laughs> and get after it. Here's what I did as a high schooler. I wanted it to be really cool, and I would go to these car shows, and there are cars that have you know, these people who really knew what they were doing, sinking 30 and 40 grand into a car. I, I sunk, you know, like 1,800, right? <laughs> right? And so I, I bought a bunch of paint. I bought silver paint. I brought black. I didn't say it was a good idea. <laughs> I bought, it was a red, it was a red, uh, you know, cherry apple uh, red car on the outside. So I had, you know, I was painting like the hoses and I'd paint the manifold chrome and I'd, I'd paint all the different parts of it to where it looked like I had all these new parts. It was my version of, you know, competing, I guess. So when I drove it to school at high school, I'd, I'd be something more than I currently was. It didn't take much. It just took a couple coats of paint. And uh, let me tell you, when I'd pull up, and I'd pull up next to like a, a real serious motor car, a sports car, and back in high school, that was the kind of thing to do. You wanted a, a car, and, I'd, and I'd, it would rev real good. Vroom! And I'm like, yeah, look at that. I can do that too. Vroom! And then, you know, the green light would hit, and it'd be like, I'm like, yeah, well, there goes that. Here's the deal. I painted the engine. It looked the part. But when you take it for a spin and you needed power, it breaks down. That's it. I mean, is your Christianity connected to power? Or is it based just on what you do? 
Nobody does that on purpose. You don't grow up thinking, hey, I just want to keep a bunch of rules, and I just want to do it this way so I feel good about myself, and then maybe at the end my good will be better than my bad, and God will let me in. I, I gotta, I'm pretty good. I come from good stock. We don't do that on purpose. But we live that a lot. That's what's so scary about it. It, it looks like Christianity. It's invasive. And it can fill our churches over decades. I'm part of it. And I still find myself doing it. I'm just doing stuff. I do the dance to get the hug from God, to be accepted. And then I remind myself, or I'm reminded by this word, or I'm reminded by one of you, hey, 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 look at Jesus, not yourself. It's about him. Because Christianity is not about not doing things and stopping this and quitting that and just looking pure. And all. It's not about that. That's what it was for me in high school. Oh, I can't go drinking with you guys. I know y'all are going to go have fun, but I can't go have fun. I'm a Christian. As if being a Christian is not fun, and I want to do that. Oh, my heart's longing to go out there where the fun is and the real life is. But i got to do this, because my mom has expectations for this religion that I have adhered to and follow the set of propositions to go, right? It's because I didn't get it. I didn't really understand that true life is here, and my definitions were wrong. That the, buff, the buffet, the banqueting table is here. I got religion and the gospel mixed up. And so understand that that's not true about Christianity, that true joy is found here, that the gospel and religion are different. In religion, we obey God so that he will accept us. In the gospel, we obey God because we are accepted because of Jesus and what he did. In religion, we are trying and attempting to save ourselves by our behavior. In the gospel, our behavior flows from joy and love for God because of what he did. They look the same. Do you have a colored and painted engine or is it legit? Believing that God has the power to change you and your flawed desires is huge. That there is joy in following God, even in his trials. It's a thing. So I say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's ultimate victory. That's a living hope in all circumstances in life. That's what you were made for. And that's what your living hope is for. Get the worship team to come back up here. I'm going to take communion now. Um, 